Welcome all to the uh, 633rd regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Thank you all for being here for our Nevins Freeman dinner, uh, honoring Horace Newborn, who's going to be speaking about Stewart's 1862 ride around McClellan. And at this time, I would like to ask Donna Tui to come up for Act Two and, and introduce our new members and guests. Donna? Uh, we have one new member tonight, Gary Naples. Please stand up. We're told that there's two. Two? Okay. We have a second to register tonight. Who is that? Well, their checks haven't bounced yet. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Mm -hmm. And we have several guests who are looking us over and they might join. Earl Clow, Sharon Clow. Oh, that's you. Okay. Holly Fromm, Steve Gillaney. Stand up. Stand up. Dan Gilliquy, John Sebastian. Be, be sure to pick up a registration form for joining tonight. See you next month. Welcome to all of you and thank you. Oh, just very quickly, um, there is a Vicksburg tour October 5th and 6th um, in Vicksburg, October 5th and 6th of this year, not our tour. But Larry Hewitt of our, of our organization is one of the speakers, one of the tour guides. I wanted to mention that. And also tomorrow in du at the DuPage County Fairgrounds, the, uh, the Civil War Memorabilia Show, 9 to 4 o'clock, uh, if you can make it out there. And uh, the book raffle. Is this a uh, father-son team that's... Young and the Restless. <laughs> which is which? Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we begin our, our raffle for battlefield preservation, I left surveys on all the tables here for, uh, from the Battlefield Preservation Committee. There's more than 80 people here. I have 14 returned surveys. Uh, will the other 66 people please comply? <laughs> I'm a policeman, and I will be checking your tickets before you leave. <laughs> Number one, six five seven, five two five. Good morning. Five two five are the last three. Six five seven, five two five. That's ours. <laughs> uh, I pulled it. It's all legit. You got to buy tickets to win. <laughs> six five seven six six eight. Sit down. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
Trying to divine right, right there. Oh. Don't put it in the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to him. <laughs> Six, five, seven, four, seven, four. Six, five, seven, five, six, one. We raised $139 for Battlefield Preservation. Don't forget the silent auction, and please fill out the surveys and return them to one of us before the end of the night. All right. Thank you, guys. And our quiz master. <laughs> Getting a warm round of applause. <laughs> As I have said before, as the late Richard J. Daly said, and what trees do you plant? <laughs> um, tonight's quiz, Horace Mewborn on Stewart's ride. Uh, true or false, O.O. Howard was a friend of Stewart's at West Point. True, he was. True or false, Stewart's other friends at West Point included John Pegram and Robert E. Lee's son, Custis. True. Yes or no, was Stewart close to the Lees after Robert E. Lee became superintendent of West Point in 1852? Yes, he was. Uh, yes or no, was Stewart the son-in-law of Philip St. George Cook? Yes, he was. And I had forgotten that until I was reading Emory Thomas's Bold Dragoon to prepare the quiz. But then I remembered we had a talk, I think, about, was it last year, Nancy, or the year before with Philip St. George Cook was, I think, a principal speaker, or was a principal topic. And, and yes or no, did Stewart encounter John Brown in Kansas in 1856? Yes, he did. So for those of you who accuse me of preparing trick quizzes, well, they were all, they were all true. Um, we had three 100s, Mike, Chuck Roast, and Jim. Thank you, David. The truth will set you free. And now I'd like to introduce past president Marshall Krolik to introduce our speaker tonight. The criteria for the Nevins Freeman Award, which we've been giving out for many, 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 many years, is twofold. Uh, number one, to be a scholar and disseminate knowledge about the Civil War. And number two, to be someone who gives of himself or herself to the Civil War Roundtable movement not just this roundtable, but all roundtables. I truthfully cannot think of anyone who deserves it more based on those criteria than Horace Mewborn. 
Horace, of course, you've all read the newsletter and have seen his, his career of great distinction. Served in Vietnam, was wounded there, served as the FBI agent, and since his retirement has devoted his time and energy to the study of the Civil War. Um, he visits the archives almost monthly or more often. He has written many articles, some of which are mentioned in the newsletter. He has written a book, edited a book, and co-authored a book. And since the unfortunate passing of John Devine, there is no question that Horace, a protege of John's, is the number one expert on Mosby and the war in Northern Virginia. But more importantly, Horace is our friend. He was our guide for our battlefield tour. He gives of his time and his energy to those of us who need his help in researching. He is devoted to all of those who study the Civil War and helping them in any way he can. His research abilities are legendary, and many of us have received help and documents, et cetera, that he gathers from the archives for our benefit. He speaks to roundtables. He guides tours for roundtables and other Civil War organizations. And above all, he is our friend. It is an honor and a pleasure to present to you Horace Mewborn. Can everybody hear me? I want to thank uh, Marshall Crowley for the great introduction. And uh, no, I'm not sure he was talking about me. There had to be some other person out there he's talking about. And I also want to thank you for inviting me to come back to Chicago to speak. As you know, it's not real often I get a chance to come back and do two presentations. Uh, the first time is usually enough. <laughs> uh, tonight I'm going to talk about Jeb Stewart's ride around the Army of the Potomac in June of 1862. In order to, and let me stop a minute. There are maps on your tables that were passed out uh, that are, were done by Dave Roth, the publisher of Blue and Gray Magazine, for an article that I wrote for, wrote for him and uh, was published in 1998. So I'd like to thank Dave Roth for letting me use those maps that you have on your table. In doing this, this presentation, what I'd like to do is go back before the ride, give you the reason, the events leading up to the ride, why it was necessary, talk about the ride, and then you give you some analysis and criticisms of the ride. In doing that, I'd like to step back to the spring of 1862. At that time, George McClellan, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, decided that he was not going to go overland and attack the Confederate Army in northern Virginia, didn't have to cross the Rapidan, the Rappahannock, the Rapidan, the North Anna, the South Anna to capture Richmond. His plan was that he was going to move his army down the Potomac in boats, across the Chesapeake Bay, land them at uh, Fort Monroe, and then they were going to advance on Richmond up the peninsula. And that's a strip of land that lies between the James and York rivers. That's exactly what he will do. In the middle of March, he will move his army, and by the 1st of April, they're moving towards Richmond. By the end of May, his army has advanced about 60 miles and they're within 10 miles of Richmond. They are so close that the soldiers claim they can hear the city's church bells. Victory seemed absolutely certain, if not imminent, but I put a qualifier on imminent because McClellan had achieved all this through siege and maneuver. 
And if you're familiar with warfare, siege operations take a long time. I mean, it takes a long time to get your army in a position. You have to dig approach trenches, parallel trenches, to get them in a position to overrun the enemy. You have to bring up the siege artillery. You have to dig positions for them, preparation for them, so that they can pound the enemy in submission. It takes a long time. And in this long length of time, that army has to have provisions. And as McClellan, McClellan was well, well aware of this, and as he had moved his army up the peninsula, he had established three or four major supply depots. The first one was at Yorktown. The second one was on the south bank of the York River uh, across from West Point. The third one was at Columbia, uh, Cumberland. And the fourth one, is, as the Army got west of the Pamunkey River, south of the Pamunkey River, was at White House. At the White House was very convenient. McClellan's quartermaster could move those supplies up the York River, a few miles into the Pamunkey, offload them at White House, and then put them on a railroad called the Richmond and York River Railroad, usually shortened to just the York River Railroad, and then move them along that railroad to the Chickahominy, where his army was scattered. In late May, General Joseph Johnston thought he had seen a problem, a flaw, in McClellan's plans. He believed that inadvertently McClellan had isolated two of his corps, the 3rd and 4th Corps. They were south of the Chickahominy. The rest of his army, the other three corps, were north of the Chickahominy. The spring of 1862 had been exceedingly wet. There had been torrential downpours throughout the springs. The roads were nothing but muddy quagmires. The streams were overflowing. The bridges were washed out. Joe Johnston believed that he could attack those two corps south of the Chickahominy and annihilate them because McClellan would not be able to move reinforcements across the Chickahominy to support these troops. The Chickahominy was flooded. So on May 31st, Johnson's army attacks, and they will drive the 4th Corps back on the 3rd Corps, but late in the evening on May 31st, the, the two corps will solidify their position, and they will hold. In spite of what Joe Johnson thought, on the night of May, of May 31st, June 1st, McClellan does move troops across the uh, Chickahominy, and they do reinforce those two corps, and the next day when the Confederates attack, the Federals will push them back. And they will push them back so far that when the fighting ends on June 1st, the two opposing forces are about in the same position they were in when the fighting started on May 31st. On May 31st, an event occurs that is, causes a very drastic change in the Confederate Army. Late in the afternoon, Joe Johnston wants to see his troops fighting, so he rides out to observe the action. As he's sitting astride his horse, an artillery projectile goes off very near him, and he's hit in the chest with a very severe wound by a piece of shrapnel. The wound is so severe that he has to be removed from the battlefield and removed from command of the Army. His second command, Gustavius W. Smith, will lead the Army, command the Army is fighting on June 1st, but he will not become the permanent commander. President Jefferson Davis has that position in mind for somebody else, Robert E. Lee. Lee will very quickly change the name of that army to the Army of Northern Virginia. An individual who is probably very happy to see that change is a 29-year-old Virginia-born Brigadier General James Ewell Brown Stewart, who's the cavalry commander. Jeb is a uh, 
close, he knows Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee had been superintendent at West Point when Lee, uh, Stewart was a cadet there, and Stewart had visited the Lee family very frequently, as Mike pointed out, and David pointed out in your quiz. He had even taken some, uh, Sunday meals frequently with the Lees while he's at West Point. That had to be an unusual relationship for, him, for a cadet to take meals with the superintendent of school. But Jeb Stewart was an ideal cavalryman, and he was well aware that the cavalry was, was called the eyes and ears of the Army because it was responsible for gathering intelligence. And he knew that Robert E. Lee would need intelligence on the dispositions of the Union armies and what their activities were as he prepared his new operational plans. And he immediately set out to get it. On June 8th, he will deploy four Confederate scouts into the Union lines near Hanover Courthouse. Those four scouts will penetrate the Union lines and return on June 10th. And they will tell Lee, tell Stuart, that the Union troops are not fortifying that northern wing, the right flank of the Union Army. That the only protection for that, light, that right flank is a very light screen of cavalry pickets. They will also they tell Stuart that that light screen of cavalry pickets is the only protection for the York River Railroad, McClellan's vital supply line. The same day, Stuart will go to Lee and advise him of the information. During that meeting, they will discuss a reconnaissance force around the right flank of the Union Army. On June 11th, Lee will issue his orders to Stuart. He will tell Stuart that he is to make a secret movement behind the enemy lines. And the primary objective of that secret movement is to gather intelligence for the guidance of future operations. Then he adds a secondary mission to do as much damage to the enemy's lines of communication as he can. During their talk on the June 10th, the two generals must have discussed Stuart riding around the Union Army, because in his orders, Lee makes gives Stuart a severe admonishment. You will return as soon as the object of your expedition is accomplished, and you must bear constantly in mind while endeavoring to execute the general purpose of your mission, not to hazard unnecessarily your command or to attempt what your judgment may not approve, but be content to accomplish all the good you can without feeling it necessary to obtain all that might be desired. We'd only given those directions a year later. When, Lee, when Stuart received Lee's orders, he will issue an order, general order of his own, and he would tell his men to prepare to move with three days' rations and 60 rounds of ammunition per man. Before dawn on June 12th, Stuart will uh, rouse his staff with a very brief order. Gentlemen, every man must be in the saddle within 10 minutes. And according to one, and according to one staff officer, they were ready within five. They will ride to the wood of Mordecai's farm, which at that time was just north of Richmond, where the main column was gathering. Today, it's inside the Richmond city limits. In his orders for the rides, Lee had directed Stewart to only take the best men and horses available. Stewart selected 1,200 men. He takes the entire 1st Virginia Cavalry, the entire 9th Virginia Cavalry, the Jeff Davis Legion, 
eight companies from the 4th Virginia Cavalry and a section of the Stuart Horse Artillery. The commander of the 1st Virginia Cavalry is Colonel Fitzhugh Fitzlee. He's 25 years of age, 27 years of age. He graduated from West Point in 1856, and he will serve in the cavalry in the West for a time after he graduates from the West Point. During his time in the West, he is very severely wounded in an Indian skirmish. The wound is so severe that the, peop that the people that are near him, the soldiers that are near him when he initially receives it, believe that, it, that it's fatal. But he does survive. After he's recovered, he's transferred to the Calvary School at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The men and officers of the 9th Virginia Cavalry were in very high spirits in anticipation of a fight. And their commander was Colonel William Henry uh, Fitzhugh Rooney Lee, who was 25 years of age and the Army commander's second son. Rooney had not attended West Point, but had attended Harvard, but had not graduated. But he had served in the Army out west as an infantry lieutenant for two years before he resigned his commission and returned to his plantation farm. The Jeff Davis Legion was composed of three companies from Mississippi, two from Alabama, and one from Georgia. It was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel William Thompson Martin. Martin was born in 1823 in Glasgow, Kentucky, and when the war started, he was a practicing attorney in Natchez, Mississippi. The reason Stewart only took eight, uh, eight companies from the 4th Virginia Cavalry is they did not have a field grade officer available to command that regiment. All the field grade officers were absent, either sick or wounded. So Stewart picked eight companies. He will divide those companies in half and give half of that, that, those eight to the 1st Virginia Cavalry and the other four to the 9th Virginia Cavalry. The section of the Stewart Horse Artillery is composed of a 12-pound howitzer and a 6-pound English rifle. The, the section and the 12-pounder are commanded by Lieutenant uh, James Brethard. Brethard is a Maryland-born physician before he joined the Army. The English rifle is commanded by Lieutenant William McGregor. He is a 19-year-old former college student from Talladega County, Alabama. The expedition will depart shortly after noon on June 12th, and initially they will head, head west before swinging north and then east. Even then, with this relatively secure move, Stuart will have scouts out in front of his column and on both flanks to prevent an inadvertent encounter with Union cavalry. At, after dark on the 12th, he will halt his column on the Winston Farm where they will bivouac, and the Winston Farm is a few miles west of Hanover Courthouse and just south of where the uh, Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad crosses the South Anna River. Before daylight on the 13th, Stuart will have his column in the saddle, and they will ride towards Hanover Courthouse. They will arrive about 9 a.m., and the advance of the column from the 9th Virginia Cavalry will chase a detachment of the 6th U.S. Cavalry out of the courthouse, capturing a few prisoners. When Stewart's column leaves Hanover Courthouse, they will ride south for a couple of miles and then turn back east. As they approach a little crossroads community known as Hall Shop, 
relatively unknown in 1862 with a much wider fame for the cavalry in May of 1864. Uh, they will de detect the outpost of the 5th U.S. Cavalry and they will very quickly capture it without firing a shot or capture most of the men. Some of them will escape. These men are from the 5th U.S. Cavalry. Let me stop a minute and give you the disposition of the Union Army. The north of the Army of the Potomac was anchored by Fitzjohn Porter's 5th Corps. Fitzjohn Porter's flank was protected by the regular cavalry reserve. The regular cavalry reserve was composed of two uh, brigades, and it was commanded by Brigadier General Philip St. George Cook. Philip St. George Cook was a graduate of West Point. He was a Virginia, he was born in Virginia, and he was a career cavalry officer. He was one of the first officers appointed to the first U.S. Dragoons, the first cavalry unit formed in 1833. He is 53 years old on June 13th, the day I'm talking about, and he might be feeling his age this day. He is also Jeb Stewart's father-in-law. The, the regular cavalry reserve, as I mentioned earlier, is composed of two brigades. The first brigade is composed of three regiments, the 5th and 6th U.S. Cavalry Regiments and the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiments. The 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry is commanded by Colonel Richard Rush, and they're known as Rush's Lancers because they were initially owned with 10-foot lances. The 2nd Cavalry Brigade is composed of the 1st U.S. Cavalry, the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry, Captain Charles Barker's Squadron of Illinois Cavalry, and Captain Daniel Mann's Oneida, New York Cavalry Company. That, that brigade is commanded by Colonel uh, George Blake. Blake's brigade is not immune from the loss of integrity. The 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry is detailed to Fitzjohn Porter's uh, Corps, and Barker's and Mann's commands are detailed to Army headquarters as escorts, couriers, and bodyguards. Blake essentially commands a one brigade, one regiment brigade. On May, on May 31st, Captain William Royal of the 5th U.S. Cavalry will be ordered to take his squadron and go to Old Church and then establish pickets on all the roads leading to Hanover Courthouse to watch the move, uh, Confederate movements in that area. Man will, uh, Royal will do that, and in addition, each day he will send a company on a reconnaissance through the area to check it out even further. Royal is an interesting guy to me. He's, a, uh, he's somebody that deserves a more study than I've given him, but uh, he was born in Virginia at a very early age. His uh, parents moved to Missouri. During the Mexican War, he served in the 2nd Missouri Mounted Volunteers. For his gallantry during the Mexican War, he has commissioned a, a first lieutenant in the 2nd U.S. Cavalry in uh, March of 1861, he is uh, promoted to captain in the 2nd U.S. Cavalry, and uh, after the war, he will his whole life will be in the U.S. Cavalry. After the war, he will spend a long time. He will be with Crook's column as they go to the Rosebud. He is a guy who has seen a lot of, he sees a lot of cavalry service in his career, and I think he has a great career. On June 13th, 
it's Lieutenant Edward Leib's turn to lead the reconnaissance towards uh, Hanover Courthouse. Leib is a uh, Pennsylvania-born uh, lieutenant in the 5th U.S. Cavalry, and as he approaches Totopotomoy Creek, he will encounter some of those men from the 5th U.S. Cavalry who had escaped from uh, Hall's shop. They will tell him there's a huge Confederate column coming at him, and he will decide that he's going to make a stand along the banks of the Totopotomoy. He also sends a courier to alert Royal at Old Church that they've got problems. When Captain William Todd Robbins, who is, has the advanced squadron of the 9th Virginia, sees Lieb's men stretched out along the Totopotomoy, he attacks, and a very vicious short fight ensues of about 20 minutes. The fight is broken up by a saber charge from another squadron from the 9th Virginia. Lieb's men will retire towards Old Church. At a place called Lenny's Corner, they will encounter Captain Royal's column, who is coming up to reinforce Lieb, and they will decide to make a stand at Lenny's Corner. It's not on your map, but it's about halfway between Hawes Shop and Old Church. Royal will deploy his men on the south side of the road along a tree line. And when Stewart arrives and sees the deployment of the Federals and that they're going to give battle, he turns to Captain William Latinay of, of uh, the Ninth uh, Virginia Cavalry and tells him to charge. Latinay was born in 1833. He graduated from the Richmond Medical College. And after taking additional courses in Philadelphia, he returns to his home to practice medicine and supervise his plantation. About 3 p.m., mounted on his beautiful half-Arabian horse called a colonel, Lee will lead the charge. And according to some accounts, he is cut down as he's leading his men just as they hit run into the federal lines. One Confederate remembered that Lee was out in front of his men cheering him on, and his last words were, Come on, boys, give it to them. As Lee's, as uh, uh, Latinese men are repulsed in this attack, Stuart will fill in more squadrons from the 9th Virginia. Eventually, Royal's men are outnumbered and they break. Royal is wounded five times as he tries to rally his men to the, to the Confederates, but they won't stand. They run. They're just outnumbered. That's sheer numbers is all it is. In this brief encounter, Stuart will have Latinay killed and four men wounded, all from Company E, 9th Virginia. The Federals will have two men killed, uh, all privates, 10 to 12 men captured, 10 to 12 men wounded, and about 35 men captured. And there are several officers captured, at least two from the 6th Pennsylvania, who were out visiting some of their friends at the outpost when it was decided to go forward. When Royal's men break, Captain Fitz Lee, Colonel Fitz Lee's regiment, which, which has been held in reserves, charges into the federal camp at Old Church. And they proceed to round up more prisoners and then confiscate weapons, supplies, and a keg of whiskey. In his report, Stewart says that Old Church was the deciding point for him, that he had achieved General Lee's primary mission, gathering intelligence. What was the situation on the north flank? And he had a choice of how he, wanted, how he could get that information back to the Confederate lines. 
He could return to Hanover Courthouse, but Stewart believed that the Federals would anticipate him making that move. He was 14 miles from the courthouse. The Federals were closer. Therefore, the Federals could very quickly move infantry and cavalry to intercept him. He had another option. That was to swing north of the courthouse. But if he did that, he would have to cross the South Anna River. That would be an impossibility. All the bridges had been destroyed. In addition, on June 9th and 10th, there had been torrential rains to go along with all that wet spring, and the South Anna was at overflowing its banks, which made all the fords impassable. He couldn't cross the South Anna. But he had another alternative, and that was to head south and cross the Chickahominy below Tunstall Station. He believed that if he took that route, that would give him the opportunity to carry out General Lee's other instruction, which was to do as much damage as he could to the Union supply lines. That was the route he chose. He also believed that if he took that route, it would be much easier because the Federals would not be expecting him to go that way. So that's where he went. He went south. In the heat and humidity of June 13th, in which one Federal soldier described in his diary as hot, hotter, hottest, Lieutenant Robbins took the lead as they went south. Just as he crossed the Matadequan River, Stewart detached two squadrons, one from the 1st Virginia Cavalry and one from the 9th Virginia Cavalry, to attack a, a secondary Union supply depot at Garlic's Landing. And what the Federals had done is they were trying to relieve the pressure on White House. So they had established a secondary depot at Garlic's Landing, which was about five miles upstream from White, uh, White House, to supply Fitzjohn Porter's Corps. It was a lot shorter when you trans transported that uh, supplies overland from Garlic's Landing than from White House. About 6 p.m., the two squadrons ride into Garlic's Landing. They discover three, slope, uh, three schooners tied at the wharf, and they meet no resistance. The landing is unprotected. The cargoes on the schooners had been offloaded onto the waiting wagons, and the Teamsters were eating supper before they harnessed their horses and mules to return to Porter's Corps. When they saw the charging Confederates, the Teamsters scattered. Some went to the woods, some went to the boats. At least one tried to swim to Pamunkey. One, teamster, one sutler who was in this group claimed that he had $6,000 in greenbacks on him when he was taken prisoner. Another settler claimed that he had a large amount of greenbacks on him when he was captured. And you can bet that these southern soldiers very quickly secured that depot and those greenbacks. When the schooner D.A. Berry realized they were under attack, they cut their mooring lines and drifted out into the, into the Pamunkey for safety. The other two schooners were not so lucky. The Confederates quickly captured the, Whitman, uh, the island city and the Whitman Phillips, plundered and burned them. After destroying all the property in the, in the uh, depot they couldn't take with them, they rode off with about 35 prisoners and, a, and about 100 horses and mules. As the main column is approaching Tunstall Station, Stewart 
calls for the artillery to come forward. He's expecting to meet resistance and he wants his artillery at the front. But there's a slight problem. The six pound English rifle is buried to the axle in a large mud hole in the, in the road and it cannot be moved. All efforts to get it out of there have failed. An enterprising young cannoneer goes to Lieutenant McGregor with a suggestion. Perhaps if the keg of whiskey captured at Old Church is offered as a reward, the gun might be saved. <laughs> Lieutenant McGregor appreciates the idea, takes the keg of whiskey, puts it on the gun, and announces the offer. According to one account, instantly those cannoneers waded into the mud hole up to the knee literally grabbed the cannon and the caisson, which was loaded with ammunition, lifted the hole out, and moved it to firm ground and set it down. <laughs> As the piece rolled past, the cannoneers removed the keg and enjoyed their reward. When Stewart's column got to Tunstall Station, they met no resistance. They saw this Union soldiers lounging around, totally unprepared for an attack. In fact, it was very evident they weren't prepared for attack because their muskets were neatly stacked on the platform. Just as the Confederates arrived, a train was heard coming from Chickahominy. So the Confederates deployed to stop it. The engineer, Charles Cundell, had initially decided he was going to take on water at Tunstall Station and was slowing the train, but then he saw some minor obstructions on the tracks and perceived that something was amiss, so he put on steam. As the train passed through, they received a volley of fire from the Confederates. One person riding on the train thought that the bullets pounding against the tender sounded like pieces of stone being suddenly thrust against a tin vessel. The train passed safely through, although several of the passengers were wounded. Tunstall Station was five miles from White House. Stewart knew that if he could attack the White House, capture it, and destroy it, it could have dire consequences for McClellan. It could force him to retire, or at the very least, it would cause him to delay any future plans he had. But Stewart decided against a visit. And that, and that decision may have been swayed by erroneous information inadvertently provided by a Union prisoner. As the Confederates had approached Tunstall Station, they had captured a member of the 11th Pennsylvania Cavalry. The day before, on June 10th, he had joined a detachment from his regiment, which had gone up the Pamunkey on a scouting mission. And he told Stewart under interrogation, or told the Confederates under interrogation, that the day before his detachment left, that a, uh, reserve, a brigade of Pennsylvania reserves had arrived at White House and were bivouacked there. What he didn't know was that after his detachment went on that scout on June 12th, that brigade had gotten up and moved west, marched west along the railroad to the Chickahominy. They weren't at the White House, but that information probably is what persuaded Stewart not to attacked the White House. Stewart ordered destruction of all the property could, took, they could not take with them, and he ordered his column south. 
one of the things that Stewart had done on this in the selection of his men to participate in this raid was he had selected several men from Company F of the 3rd Virginia Cavalry. That company was raised in New Kent County, which the column was now passing across. Two of those men played prominent roles in the guidance of this column. Richard Frazier guided the column from Old Church to Tunstall Station, and when the column headed south, Lieutenant Jones Christian was in the lead. About four miles from uh, Tunstall Station, they arrived at Tallysville, where a, which was known, where a commercial establishment known as Baltimore Store was located. Here, Stewart stopped his column for a couple of hours to let the tired and weary horsemen and men rest and let some stragglers catch up. In his report, Stewart noted that he deemed it proper not to molest a federal hospital of 150 patients. But a nearby sutler store was not so lucky. Some of the hungry Confederates very quickly ransacked the store and began consuming what they had captured. Figs, beef tongue, pickle, candy, tomato ketchup, preserves, lemons, cakes, sausages, molasses, crackers, and canned meats. After midnight, Stewart will start his ride south. To hasten the ride, he will mount two prisoners on each of the captured mules. That must have been fun. <laughs> but now the, the exhaustion and the long ride starts to tell as whole companies go to sleep in the saddle. Even Stewart went to sleep and had to be held in the saddle by one of his men, one of his staff officers. Lieutenant Jones Christian guided the column to his father's farm, which was on the north bank of the Chickahominy River. He thought they could use a ford on it that was on his father's, that touched his uh, father's farm to cross the Chickahominy, but when they arrived, they found the Chickahominy was flooded and they couldn't use it. The men began to grow anxious. They sensed that the Federals were very close behind them and they knew they had to find a way to cross this stream very quickly or they were going to be trapped between the Federals and the raging waters. They didn't like the idea. When Stewart arrived, he assessed the situation and decided they would try another crossing about a mile downstream at Jones of Forge Bridge, where the road from Providence Forge crosses the Chickahominy as it goes to Charles City Courthouse. When they get to the Forge Bridge, they find it has been destroyed by Confederates retreating about a month before, leaving only stone abundance on each side. But Stewart decides this is the place they're going to cross. They find a skiff nearby which they anchor in midstream as a pontoon, and then they take uh, beams from a nearby warehouse and lay them from one, shore, one bank to the skiff and then from the skiff to the other bank. When that's completed, when the walkway's completed, Stewart orders half the men to cross and set up a defensive position on the other side. Those men cross and then they get another setback. They haven't crossed the Chickahominy, they're only on an island. And the bridge on the other side has suffered the same th fate as this bridge. It had been destroyed about a year before, about a, about a month before. Fortunately, after a very short reconnaissance, they find a difficult swampy ford at the western end of the island which they can use to cross the other branch of the Chickahominy. 
But the men back at the bridge realized they've got a problem. They can't cross the artillery on this footbridge. They're going to have to build a real bridge. So they go back to the warehouse, remove the floor beams, the floor seals, and with great difficulty lay them from abutment to abutment with only inches to spare. Then they go back to the warehouse and get the walls of the warehouse to use as flooring for the bridge. By 4 p.m. on June 14th, they've completed the bridge, the artillery's across, the rest of the troops across, and then Stewart goes to Lieutenant Robbins, who has led the advance all the way from Hanover Courthouse, and tells him he's now in charge of the rear. He's got the job of burning the bridge. Lieutenant Robbins' command will burn, set the bridge on fire, and then they will stay to watch it burn. And just as it collapses into the Chickahominy, they will start receiving fire from the north bank, and they realize the Federals have fi finally appeared. They will mount their ho horses and ride off to join the main column. When Stewart's column reaches Charles City Courthouse, they will stop for a rest. Stewart and his staff will stop at the home of Judge Isaac Christian, and the rest of the command will bivouac on the, on the farm of Colonel J.W. Uh, Wilcox. About 6 o'clock on June 14th, Stewart will go to Fitz Lee and tell him that he is going to take his staff and ride to Richmond to alert General Lee to what he's found. And he tells Fitz Lee to have the rest of the column in the saddle by 11 o'clock. Stewart will be in Richmond before dawn on June 15th, and he will go directly to Lee, and they will have their conference. About midnight, Fitz Lee has the rest of the column in the saddle, and they are riding towards Richmond. But they cannot relax, even though they're on the south side of the Chickahominy. What they have to ride through is a very narrow gap between the south side of the Union Army and the James River, and that gap is patrolled by Union gunboats in the river. It's covered by Union gunboats. In addition, there's the possibility of an inadvertent encounter with Union cavalry patrolling that gap. So they have to be very careful. But the ride was uneventful, and they will arrive in Richmond shortly before dawn on June 15th. The praise and acclaim they receive for this ride will do much to revive the tired, weary soldiers. They will get great acclaim, both in northern and southern press. And having, when I wrote this article, I did a lot of research in northern papers, and they, it's unbelievable how much time they spent in covering this raid. When Stewart is waiting, as Stewart's command leaves the Chickahominy, John Eston Cook, who is on his staff, rides up to Stewart and tells him they've just escaped from a very tight situation. And he asks Stewart, what would he have done if the Federals had appeared before the bridge was completed? And typical Stewart, he says, I would have died game. But Stewart did not have to worry. As Samuel Heinzman put it in his diary, the expedition was handsomely managed, and then he added, the pursuit was not managed well. The lack of an enthusiastic response by the Federal Cavalry points out the problems it was having at that time, and the problems were they had no central force like the Confederates. 
as McClellan is getting ready to make his advance up the peninsula in March of 1862, he will issue an order which will scatter the different cavalry brigades to the infantry corps. The problem with that is you have no centralized command. It makes it impossible to coordinate the cavalry between all these corps. And the corps commanders are infantrymen. They have very little experience in handling mounted troops. So they further create a problem is that they will disseminate those troops down further. They will divide the cavalry brigade they have into regiments and put them to send the regiments down to their division and brigade level where they're at the mercy of the infantry commanders. They're assigned any duties appropriate, wagon train guards, escorts, bodyguards, couriers, whatever. They're not used as cavalry. And this makes it extremely tough to get an organized cavalry pursuit. Another thing I looked at I, as I wrote the article for Blue and Gray, it hit me that once Stewart's column gets across to the south side of the Chickahominy, there doesn't appear to be any coordination between the guys on the north side and the guys on the south side. They're not talking to each other, apparently. And there's no effort that I can see, that I could find, of the cavalry on the south side of the Chickahominy making any effort to cut Stewart off, cut the column off. It's just, it was a nightmare situation. George, uh, General William Emory, who commanded the first brigade of the reserve uh, cavalry, of the regular cavalry reserve at this time, said that what McClellan's order did, it, that his order practically neutralized the cavalry as a body. Now, as most of you know, Stewart's ride has been debated over the years since the war. There have been pros and cons about it. A lot of people don't believe that it was as successful as others claim. And when you look at it, you sort of wonder. If you look at the secondary goal, the destruction of, of uh, the lines of communication, they were very minimal. Yes, they destroyed some wagons, about 14 or 15 wagons. They destroyed, they sank two schooners. They destroyed two carloads of, of uh, forage at Tunstall Station. They uh, captured about 165 prisoners. They killed about 10 Federals and, and wounded about 25 or 30 others. They brought in about 300 horses. They just tore up some tracks at Tunstall Station, but they were very quickly repaired. The destruction, the secondary mission was very minimal. If you look at the primary mission, the gathering of intelligence, that's even tougher to make an assessment on. Stewart in his after action report hardly mentions anything of an intelligence nature. He did have that face-to-face -face on the morning of uh, June 15th with Lee, but there's no record of what was said there. You don't know what type of information he provided. Many people believe that Lee was already aware of what Stewart told him. If you remember, the, the four scouts that came back, they reported the exact same, same thing that Stewart reported, could have reported to Lee that there was only a light cavalry screen protecting that right flank. Other more recent historians have criticized Lee for letting Stewart make this raid. I think there's a logical explanation. That explanation is 
that if you go back and look, Lee takes command of this army on June 1st. Stuart starts his raid, well actually Stuart and Lee discuss the raid on June 10th, nine days later. Lee is well aware of most of the officers in, in command positions in the army, either in, this, in his army, either through his service in the old army before the war or his time as President Jefferson Davis's uh, chief of staff. What he doesn't know is the men in the ranks. He doesn't know if he can rely on those volunteer scouts. He doesn't know whether they actually went into the Union lines or just went a couple of miles away from camp, sat down, waited two days, and came back in and said, hey, there's nothing out there. He wants somebody that he knows, he trusts, he can rely on to go get that information for him and tell him. Who was that person? Jeb Stewart. He had known Jeb Stewart at West Point. He knows his career record at West Point. He knew Jeff, Jeb Stewart when he went to handle the John Brown crisis at Harper's Ferry uh, in 1859. Stewart went with him as a volunteer aide. It was Stewart who carried Lee's message to Brown in the firehouse. It was Stewart who identified Brown because of their, uh, he had had encounters with Brown in Kansas. He knows he can rely on Jeb Stewart. He wants somebody he knows that he can rely on to get that information from, and that's the reason he sends Jeb Stewart on this ride. What he will later learn is that his army is blessed with great scouts. H.B. McClellan, in an article he wrote after the war, said that very often later in the war, the army's movements would be based on information from these scouts alone that there would be no other indication, reason for Lee to move his army except for what these scouts are telling him, and he will do it. He learns that he can rely on what they tell him. But I think that there's a good part, and let me point out another thing too. Another criticism of this raid is that it alerted to McClellan to, uh, it could have alerted McClellan to the problems with his north flank, his right flank. McClellan said the raid had very little effect on his decisions. But the timing is very interesting. After, in his after-action report, McClellan says, it pretty much blows it off. He just says they destroyed a couple of, they sank two schooners, they destroyed some wagons, they destroyed some railroad cars, they did some damage to the, to the uh, York River Railroad, which was quickly repaired and they captured some prisoners. That's all he said very quickly, just blows it up. But if you look at it, he makes a decision. Stewart returns on the 15th. By the 18th, he has made a decision that if he has to retreat, he is going to the James River. He's not going to White House. He's going to the James River because he can get the coverage of his gunboats. And he has a new supply base already underway on June the 18th. Now think about that a minute. June 18th, he has had nothing but successes as he marches up the peninsula. I mean, Joe Johnson has done nothing but retreat. There have been some skirmishes, some small fights, but basically nothing major all the way to the outskirts of Richmond. And yet he's thinking about retreating. I would really like to be able to get in these guys' minds and say, George, what are you thinking about? You've had nothing but victories. Why are you thinking about retreating? I can't do it. I don't know. And another way, I think the raid set another very dangerous precedent. All the young cavalry officers 
saw the praise and acclaim that Stuart received for this accomplishment. For the rest of the war, those cavalry officers that are ambitious, looking for promotion, looking for fame and glory, will want to copy what Jeb Stuart did. They will, for the rest of the war, all you will see is cavalry raids from a number of these, these cavalry officers. I think that many of them had no idea of the wear and tear that placed in the men and the horses, especially for the Confederate cavalry. With the scarcity of horses in the South, it was almost impossible to find remounts. And certainly, the horses they captured on these, re on these raids were nowhere near enough to replace the mounts they lost. It was an impossible situation. In closing, just let me say this. If Stuart at Old Church had decided that he was going back by way of Hanover Courthouse, I think history would have been not denied a very wonderful exploit. And as far as you're concerned, thank you very much, but if Stuart had decided to go at Old Church to go back by Hanover Courthouse, you would not have had to endure me tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs> very much. Horace, will you take some questions? Sure. Be glad to. Thank you. You know, it's always, I don't see any hands, so it's always nice to know I've covered everything so well everybody understands <laughs> it. Yes, David. My question is, after Stuart made his raid, did Union cavalry officers bucking for promotion, did they also want to emulate Stuart? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you look, you looked at, two of, I am not, I know very little about the Western campaigns. I am purely an Eastern campaign guy. I apologize for that, but the war is too big for me to study it all. I'm a slow learner. So I have to focus on something. Uh, but if you look like the Kilpatrick Dogan Raid, I think that, that the whole purpose of that, I mean, there was some good, there was some feasible ideas, there was some interesting ideas. But I think the primary focus of that was people wanting to get promoted. The Wilson Cotts Raid, again, I think that's another raid that people want to get promoted. So let's go on a raid, show them what we can do. I, I really do think that uh, sometimes I wonder if, and I'm not being trying to be critical of the North because I don't, sometimes I wonder if the South understood the rating concept. Certainly like guys like John Hunt Morgan, when they go way over in Ohio on a raid. I mean, it, you know, if you can pull it off, it's a great feat. If you don't pull it off, you look like a klutz. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people, a lot of these officers understood the concept of raiding. Uh, going back to, and again, I say some of the Southerners didn't understand it, uh, the uh, Kilpatrick Dogan Raid. To me, having been in the military, having looked at all this stuff, been trained in it, raids are fast, very quick moving. You don't stop very long. You keep moving because you don't want anybody to catch up with you. You want to go in, pull your objective off, get out be whatever your objective is. The Kilpatrick Dogan Raid, in essence, was to go in and free the prisoners at Libby Prison. But then what? What do you do with those prisoners? Are you going to double mount them on your horse and slow your horses, which are already tired from coming from the Rappahannock to Richmond? Are you going to double mount them to ride them out and slow you down even further? Are you going to leave them on foot just to be captured again? I mean, you've got to have some idea of what's going on. The, the Wilson-Cotts raid, 
they were going in to destroy railroads. That's a great idea now when you've got all the unique explosives we have. It wasn't in the, they didn't even have dynamite in the Civil War. Dynamite does not come along until 1869 when Alfred Nobel develops it. All they had was gunpowder. So what they had to do was they had to go in, pry the rails up, build a fire, bonfire out of the uh, railroad ties hot enough to where they could bend those rails to make them unusable. That takes time. Guess what? Somebody's coming after you. And the longer you sit there bending these rails, the closer that somebody's getting. I, I, I mean, they, these are the things looking at, and I, I'll admit, I'm looking at it from a 21st or 20th century historian, military guy's concept. I don't understand it. And the only thing I can say is I don't think they understood it. But that's, that's my answer. I don't think so. I, I have never seen nitro being used. Now, they may have had it. I just have never seen it used. Somebody more into chemistry is going to have to answer that question. You had a question? Uh, yeah, you briefly mentioned the, uh, uh, the reporting on the raid in the northern newspapers. Can you describe more about the public relations value uh, of the Stuart uh, raid? One of, the, one of the side benefits of Stuart's raid and you got to look at the timing. It's in June of 1862. Morale in the South is at bottom, is at the bottom of the well. The South, except for First Manassas and Balls Bluff, has had no victories until June 9th. They've lost it. All of, almost all of eastern North Carolina is gone. The, the Federals have captured Hatteras Island, Roanoke Island, Newburn. They've established outposts in, in uh, Washington and Plymouth. Uh, a lot of eastern North Carolina is under federal control. The federals are in control at, uh, they beat, uh, at one at Shiloh, Elkhorn Tavern, New Orleans. Uh, Joe Johnson has done nothing but retreat up the peninsula. I mean, morale is at an all-time low for the Confederacy. June 9th, Stonewall Jackson wins at Cross Keys. June 10th, he wins at Port Republic. June 15th, Stuart rides in from his raid. Morale goes up. That was an unexpected side benefit that was un incredible. I mean, every, all the newspapers in the South talk about how good the morale is. Yes, sir? How many miles did they travel in those four days? About 100 miles, give or take. Was it a lot for them? Uh, it's a lot when you consider that you're doing it almost continuously. They did have a short break on the night of the 12th. Stewart gave them an hour's break or a couple hours break at Tunstall Station on the 14th. And then on the, or on the third night of the 13th, and then on the 14th, they get a couple hours break at, at uh, uh, say, uh, Charles City Courthouse. Not a lot of time to rest. And they're almost continuously in the saddle. If you, if you got behind, you were playing catch up all the way. Yes, sir. Of course, I was just trying to remember whether there were any uh, raids during the Napoleonic Wars or any of the wars prior to the Civil War where the U.S. Army Cavalry Corps could develop some sort of doctrine on raiding, and I couldn't think of any. Was there any U.S. Cavalry doctrine on raiding to guide these people? I don't think so, and I, and I think, if, if you remember, a lot of these guys had learned their cavalry tactics in the West. 
uh, where they were, had gone after the Indians. Um, and I think that's one of the things, that's one of my criticisms of Philip St. George Cook, is that he had been a cavalry officer in the West. When you go on an operation in the West, on an expedition, you had your wagons behind you carrying your food, your forage, ammunition, because you weren't going to get it from anywhere else. You weren't going to stop out there in some of these areas in the West and get food and forage for your horses or your, or your men. You weren't going to have to be able to get a supply of ammunition. You had to carry it with you. Philip St. George Cooks makes a couple of very interesting statements in his report. I don't think I would have had the nerve to put these in there. This one is not so bad, but it gives you an, it gives you an indication of the mindset. They are behind the Union lines. He says that as he takes the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry out to pursue Stuart, that he finds out that the men have not brought any forage with him. So he tells them to go back to camp and get forage for their horses. I doubt he's ever going to be four or five miles, more than two or three, four hours from where he can get forage and supplies. He's behind the Union lines. And I've had arguments with some of my friends who are Union, not Marshall, because I don't think we've ever discussed this, but other friends of mine who are Union, and they say I'm crazy. But I just don't see it. Uh, the next the thing that really bothers me is he says that when I, after I turn the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he says because I can't give you the exact quote, but it's, after I send the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry to get forage, I return to my tent for a cup of coffee. Wait a minute. Where is, where is a very enthusiastic, aggressive response? There is none. That's what I'm saying. There is a total failure and a, an aggressive response. And it, now, Give Philip St. George Cook, let me say this to his credit. He has assigned an infantry brigade to assist him with trying to get Stuart's cavalry. But he is told, do not abandon your infantry. Let, do not run off and leave them. Stay with them. He's not going to travel very fast after cavalry. I mean, these are things that really bother me about this whole federal pursuit. It's, it's, Sometimes you ought to just go into ORs and look at these reports. They really give you some good insight into what's going on. And like I said, I wish I could get in these guys' minds and say, hey, what are you thinking about? Why did you make this decision? What, what are the issues outside of what I'm seeing that you were looking at that I'm not seeing? It, it's, I just wish I could do that. Yes, sir. Uh, I, this is what, this is my perception, having looked at it, I, I think it depended on the size of the unit. I have, I've seen almost no, well, I can't say, I have seen. Um, if it's a, uh, like maybe James Brethren might have submitted a report because he was in charge of the artillery on this raid. But you wouldn't have seen, unless it's an independent company, you probably would not have seen a uh, 
captain make a report from one of the companies in the Ninth Virginia? You, maybe the two the two squadrons that went to Garlic's Landing might have. I have I've never seen it. There might be, but it would have worked its way up. Usually, what you see is either a regimental or brigade commander do a report. That goes up to the division commander. He makes a report. That goes up to the uh, corps commander or the uh, army commander, and he'll make a report. And with the common background of the West Point education, it was basically the same system wasn't Basically, yes. Um, are these reports available? They, some of them, a great many of them, I'm surprised at how many of them still are. I mean, I'm surprised how many have never been published. I still go into archives and find reports that have never been published. I'm also surprised at the ones that are missing. Um, and I, I, to make your point, let me just step aside and go to another project I'm working on. Again, I only talk about cavalry. Um, I'm working on a, on a project on North Carolina cavalry. Uh, a North Carolina cavalry brigade is formed in September of 1863. One of their first fights is at a little town called Jack Shop. There's been almost nothing written about it by current historians. Uh, and what has been written, I think, is wrong. But that's my interpretation. That's I'm sure that the author that wrote it thought he was right. Um, Stuart commands. The, the Confederate cavalry has been split up into. It is now basically a corps with two divisions. Um, Stuart, because Wade Hampton is absent, his his division is commanded by Jeb Stuart. Stuart wrote no report of of Jack Shop. Or if he has, I can't find it. Uh, Judson Kilpatrick was there. He did not write a report. If he has, I can't find it. Um, John Buford was there. He wrote a report, but it's very sketchy. There are very few official reports of this fight, which surprises me because it's it, it just, I'm just, based on who's involved in it, I'm just surprised there are no, no very so few reports. Sure, one more question. Okay. Thank you very much. This way? Okay, now giggle. You're not giggling. I'll give you one more right, every, chance Everybody, giggle. hold on one, one moment, please. All right, thanks. That's wait, for Hal Ardell. Wait, Horace, I want to thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. I really appreciate your kicking my year as president off with a great talk. And um, in recognition of the, of the Nevin, Nevin, easy enough for you to say, the Nevins Freeman Award, we want to present you with Douglas Southall Freeman's The South to Pos Posterity and Alan Nevins' The Gates, The Gateway to History. Thank with our thanks. Thank you very much. And also, and also Horace, our medal for um, gallant service to the Civil War Roundtable presented to Horace Newborn, September 14, 2007, with our thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. This Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And ask you all to join us again next month 
for A. Wilson Green speaking on Petersburg. Thank you all for being here. Safe ride home.